locked behind our door. Hi, Julie. Hello, Nancy. Who do we have up today? We are welcoming back Bill Jenkins, who we recently had on with his wife, Jennifer Bishop Jenkins. These two, we're having her back on too in, in a couple of weeks. Um, Talk about a are, smart couple. Oh my gosh. They are just uh where did endless. I go wrong? Yeah, exactly. Makes you really wonder what you've accomplished when you speak to these <laughs> yes. two. Um, so Bill is coming back to talk to us about uh, a specific topic. He is an associate professor at Dominican University in Chicago and teaches training informed leadership and uh, as well is a very experienced business owner in US labor laws regarding those with disabilities. Um, we had, you'll hear a podcast on the business he and his wife own, Love for Dogs, and he is the business side, and they do a lot with those struggling with mental illness and disabilities as employees. And now he also has told us that he is um, teaching much at this university on trauma-informed leadership. I believe I also saw the term trauma-informed, trauma not enforced, trauma-informed leadership and trauma-informed mindfulness. So looking forward to hearing what that's all about. Welcome. Welcome back. Hi, guys. How are, how is everybody? It's good to see you again. Yes. Well, when, whenever I hear somebody start listing off the, you know, my bio and the things I've done, I, I just get exhausted. I, just, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's hard to keep up with it myself. That's how life is. You start with one thing and then it takes you in yeah. different directions. But we're very excited to have you here with your expertise. One of the things I, I wanted to ask is how you got mm -hmm. involved in um, or interested in labor laws and um, you're also your trauma-informed leadership. Well, um, two different stories there and I will I will do the, the labor issue first. Uh, my wife, Jennifer Bishop, and I uh, started a um, dog grooming business uh, about eight years ago in 2014. Uh, when uh, she uh, had took her 20 years of uh, of experience grooming dogs uh, that was more informal um, and turned into a profession uh, as we were getting closer to uh, older ages uh, in our lives, uh, we felt that uh, this would be a good time for her to change gears. And uh, we, we got a dog grooming shop set up and it's become uh, recognized as one of the best dog grooming shops in the Chicago land area. And um, uh, it's in incredibly successful. Uh, it's one of those things where you, it's, it's like, be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. Uh, and now we employ uh, about 12 to 15 employees, uh, some of whom uh, are uh, dealing with uh, various uh, spectrum disorders and uh, uh, atypical neurobiology with their with their brains and um, but uh, they work uh, they do a good great job for us and uh, so that's what we talked about the last uh, uh, podcast if anybody missed it they should go back and listen to it uh, and um, so uh, as I was uh, uh, teaching at Dominican University uh, in River Forest I um, uh, was teaching teaching a seminar on uh, careers and uh, for our junior. Uh, seminar students. And one of the things that we talk about in there is um, how do you get a career? How do you get a job? Uh, but I also wanted to inject a little bit more to that. I didn't want them to just go out there and get a job. I also wanted them to be a good employee. 
uh, and to uh, work and play well with others in their in their work. And I also, when they get to the point where they are supervising others, I wanted them to be a good supervisor. I want them to be good bosses. Uh, and so the the way I would do that is I would I would inject various um, uh, concepts uh, into the into the discussion. One of which, of course, was what are what are their responsibilities and what are their rights. Uh, as employees uh, in terms of a safe workplace and uh, OSHA and uh, um, uh, various labor laws and things like that. And then I would also uh, uh, discuss issues like um, uh, the uh, interacting with other other employees of various abilities. Uh, and uh, as employers, uh, when they get to that point, um, how to respect the, the dignity and the, and the equity of uh, people that may come to them looking for jobs who are working for them. Uh, and we talked about disability rights, and uh, especially since there's, there's so much controversy and, and difficulty with that based on the, the, um, the Fair Labor Standards uh, Act that was passed in 1938, which hasn't been updated. And and basically says, you know, if you are, if you have a disabled employee, you really don't have to worry about paying them for, you know, uh, pay them the minimum wage because, um, you know, I had no idea. Clearly, are not going to be making as much money for you. So, oh. we oh. can uh, talk about that a little later on. I got some documentation on that. We can we can chat about um, the trauma end of things is a little bit more difficult um, on all, all around. Um, my 16-year-old son was shot and killed in 1997 uh, in Richmond, Virginia, when he was on his second day of work at a fast food restaurant. And of course, one of the things that we know is that fast food restaurants are some of the most dangerous places to work. And uh, quite frankly, uh, the, the worst time to be there is at closing time, because that's when the, the right. business is so vulnerable. Uh, and he was on his second day at work uh, at this fast food restaurant basically just a little hamburger place. Uh, it was um, didn't have an eat-in uh, area. It was more like uh, the, the checkers or the sonic uh, business model where you just had a building uh, and people would walk up or drive up and they'd pick up their food and they'd go away. Um, but uh, William was um, working there till closing time that night uh, and uh, the manager told him to go ahead and uh, head on outside to uh, while she locked up and and uh, turned on the alarm. Uh, and when William walked out the back door, there was a man uh, standing up against the wall, and he had a gun, a handgun. And uh, he grabbed William and put the gun up to William's neck and told him to turn around and open the door, uh, which William did. I mean, we tell our employees, we tell our kids, you know, just give them the money, don't escalate the situation. And, and, you know, they'll take the money and they'll leave you alone, um, most likely, most of the time. And sometimes it doesn't work that way. And sometimes the bad guys don't get the memos and they don't read them about what they should do when this happens. Uh, William got the memo uh, and he uh, um, uh, behaved perfectly appropriately. He did not escalate the situation. He immediately turned around, knocked on the door. Uh, the manager inside looked out the, the security viewer, uh, saw what was going on, and um, she said, what's, what's going on? And William said, uh, Winona, you have to open the door. And as soon as she unlocked the door and opened it up so the man could get in, uh, for whatever reason, we still don't know why, um, the man fired the gun uh, and William was killed instantly. Uh, the man then uh, 
pointed the gun at the manager and told her to open the safe or, or to give him the money. Uh, took her five tries to open the safe because, you know, when we're yeah. deeply traumatized, uh, our fine motor skills just go right out the window. Um, and um, then uh, he took the 17, almost $1,800 out of the safe, grabbed her purse, stuffed the money in the, and the gun in the purse, ran back out and ran down the hill behind the restaurant where there was uh, two accomplices, a 17-year-old uh, girl and an 18-year-old girl uh, who were waiting for him. And he jumped in the car. They drive off at a high rate of speed. Uh, what he didn't know was there was a young man standing on the other side of the building uh, waiting for his mom to pick him up. And there was a payphone on the building uh, on, the, on the side. This was before the age of you know, a cell phone in every teenager's pocket. Uh, and um, uh, the young man dialed 911. There was a police officer literally across the street um, doing some paperwork in a used car parking lot. He pulls out, uh, comes down the side of the building, sees the car drive off and follows follows the car um, and uh, uh, apprehends them just minutes later. Uh, and uh, but, you know, William's dead. Uh, we went through the trials. We went through the uh, um, the whole uh, process of the you know the, the trials for the for the uh, offender, for the murderer, and for the two accomplices. And uh, long story, very very short, uh, very long story, very short. Um, William's murderer is in prison for um, uh, for life uh, with uh, no chance of parole um, in Virginia. Uh, the two girls um, uh, got out after 14 years and 18 years in prison. It's up to 25 years now, so it's been a while. Uh, and um, they uh, have another chance at their life. Yeah. And this is something we, we asked for in the victim impact statement that we were allowed to give, that uh, we really felt that their, their biggest mistake that night was being was hanging out with somebody they shouldn't have ever hung, up, hung out with. And um, I have it on good authority that at least one of them um, really turned her life around in prison, figured it out, uh, made uh, made a lot of progress, got her GED, got a got a, got a cosmetology degree, got an AA degree, really uh, focused on what she should have focused on, improving her life while she was in prison, and uh, and now she's out, and I trust that that she is doing well. Um, and the man that shot my son is still in prison, and he will be till he dies. And I then became an expert on trauma from the inside and started yeah. studying it the hard way uh, and uh, noticing my own changes in my own life and my own personality and family and friends. Um, then I went on to write a book called What to Do When the Police Leave, A Guide to the First Days of Traumatic Loss, which uh, is now being used by police departments and victim assistance programs all over the U.S. and Canada um, to help victims of homicide. Uh, it's not a book about my story. It is a book about what you do. How do you plan a funeral on short notice? How do you talk to your children and the family about what's happened? Uh, how do you deal with particular? Uh, how do you, you know, deal with the criminal justice system? What happens during during the uh, uh, when if the case goes to court? Um, it's not at all like uh, you know, um, like Law and Order, right? They wrap it all up in an hour and boom, you're done. It's like yeah, that doesn't happen. Uh, so. That was my my big claim to fame, um, and uh, then uh, uh, Jennifer and I met because I was invited to speak at a conference that she was attending, 
because when you write a book, people think you know something. So I've, I've been on the speaking circuit now for the past 25 years, uh, speaking to victim advocacy programs, uh, police departments, uh, even uh, prosecutors and defense attorneys uh, on human rights, uh, victims' rights, um, trauma, the neurobiology of trauma, um, just all those things that uh, that are related to to this. And now I'm teaching at um, uh, teaching in our new um, uh, Dominican's new uh, uh, master's degree in trauma informed leadership uh, graduate program. Uh, and I'm teaching the first course that everybody takes, the one on uh, trauma informed basics. And uh, we learn all about how trauma uh, affects people's lives and uh, how it affects society and um, how a lot of the things in society that we're dealing with right now are directly related to the to a lot of the trauma then and stress that we experience in the uh, in our society today. So um yeah that's the that's the really short version of how I, I'd love for you <laughs> how I got here. Um so uh yeah. <laughs> I'd love for you to really define trauma informed leadership the term but before that sure. I just have to say I can't get over your story. And I knew the basics from just recently meeting you, but mm -hmm. uh, the book, um, it sounds like quite a unique book that is out there. Well needed. Well needed. And just in a class by itself, uh, written from some someone who really knows and all of the things that are not in writing in one under one cover. That yes. is really mind blowing. Yes. I, I can't get over it. And sadly, you have become an expert in this field. And, exactly. And oftentimes, I feel, being in law enforcement, that you know when there when there's a crime that's committed, um, mm -hmm. and it and it has a tragic ending to it, um, they focus on the offender and they forget about that this was a person. They had a whole life and they have a family behind it. So exactly. I, I just want to point that out for our family that's listening, you know, um, don't forget it because it affects you not for five minutes for the rest of it changes your whole life. And it sounds like it, this book is a, a guidebook that somebody should read, but hold on to for different stages and different things they go through. It just sounds as though it's like a Bible. something to hold on to. Yes. Like a Bible. It, it actually has been called the Bible of the victim services industry. Yeah, it um, I, I've received a couple of awards for, for my work on it. And uh, um, one of the quotes during one of those uh, uh, assemblies was, uh, yes, he wrote the Bible of our industry kind of thing. So, wow. um, but it's, it's, you know, not to dwell on it too much, but it's, it is important because nobody ever teaches you how to deal with trauma. Right. Uh, especially big trauma, the big key trauma. You and know, I think the, the only one who can monster teach you, meteor falling on your head kind of trauma. Yeah, the the people, the only one who can really teach this is someone who has sadly been through it. I think you have to, like yourself, be in the position to really know it from the heart, from the inside mm -hmm. out. Well, I certainly do add a different dimension than uh, somebody that's simply, I'm not going to say simply because I, I, but I don't want to mean their, their work, but who has been a therapist all their life and worked with this population, who's somebody who's been a professional. There are a lot of books I found that were written by nurses and doctors. And um, uh, one of the best ones that was written before me was called No Time for Goodbyes by Janice Harris Lord. Uh, for the Mothers Against Drunk Driving organization because they saw a need for a book like this. Um, and they hired Janice, and she was a professional uh, psychotherapist. But 
um, she had an experienced trauma, so she would interview people and collect lots of great information. It's a fabulous book. It's incredibly important. But when I was reading it, I really noticed that she never uses words like we and us. And uh, I went through this kind of thing. This is the, her book was written in the third person. And uh, as valuable as it is, I really felt that that my personal voice uh, to uh, to the issue uh, could be of great help. And uh, when I met Janet uh, Janice uh, a number of years later, she agreed that that was the thing that really makes my book stand out. So, so back to trauma informed leadership. Sure. The definition of that term. What's that? That what would you? How could you define that? Well, the simplest definition is that it is conducting your life, conducting your business, conducting the business of your institution or your company um, in a way that acknowledges uh, the needs of people who may come across your path that uh, have been traumatized. And uh, that trauma has sensitized them in various ways. Uh, they may be emotionally fragile. They may, uh, they may have anger issues. Um, it, it's, it, uh, they may have, uh, they may dissociate, uh, throughout the day when, when stress gets bad, uh, they may get up and run to the bathroom. I mean, just, uh, because they're being avoidant, um, but trauma affects people in a variety of different ways. And we'll cover some of those, uh, those symptoms in a little bit. Uh, and, um, but, uh, even, even with the understanding in the, in the community today, in the psychiatric community today, many people talk about the symptoms of trauma. Uh, the way we look at it from a trauma perspective is um, not uh, what's happened to you as opposed to, uh, I'm sorry, uh, not what's wrong with you, but what has happened to you? Uh, what has happened to result in these responses, which are not so much symptoms as they are coping strategies? Uh, a lot of people uh, who have been traumatized uh, will have anger aggression issues. Well, of course they are. They don't trust people and they don't want you in their face. Uh, and the way they can push you back uh, onto your side of the line is by being aggressive. Um, they may uh, become avoidant uh, and, and uh, not get involved in uh, and not, not expose themselves to certain experiences. They may not go to a club. Uh, anymore because that's where they got hurt before. Uh, they may have gotten raped there. Uh, they may not go into the city anymore because they may have gotten mugged there. Uh, they may be just uh, avoidant of all dogs because they were bitten by the neighbor's chihuahua. You know, um, so when we're dealing with with the traumatized population, which is much larger than people think it is, okay. um, we have to be. Um, aware of the things that they may need, uh, not only in the workplace, but also in school, also in, um, in our daily lives, also just walking down the street. Uh, and, uh, and being trauma-informed makes you sensitive to that in a variety of different ways. Uh, one of the uh, things that I have found in, in the uh, documentation is that the most accurate information we have right now of people that have been exposed to traumatizing uh, situations which are generally considered to be life-threatening, uh, terrorizing, um, and extremely distressing and stressful, as opposed to just annoyingly stressful. Um, it's close to 90% of the population exposed to at least one. That doesn't now, surprise me. No, it doesn't. 
Uh, and I expect the other 10% are either like four years old or in a coma. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, Oblivious at, yeah. at best. Right. Um, but uh, the fascinating thing about is that we have evolved to deal with stress and we've evolved to deal with trauma in some respects because the actual incidence of trauma diagnoses is only around 10% of the population. So we do get better. Now, that's the number of people that have risen to a level where they can be diagnosed. There are another 80% then who are what I call living under the shadow of trauma, living with subsyndroma trauma. They have been traumatized. They may express behavioral changes in their lives and personality changes in their lives that reflect that exposure, but they do not rise to the very debilitating level of uh, PTSD. So basically, everybody in our country uh, today and generally the world um, uh, could benefit from being trauma-informed uh, and could benefit from trauma-informed practices, could benefit from trauma-informed workplaces. Uh, and um, so that's where, uh, that's where I start with, uh, with my class, which uh, I'll be teaching this evening, as a matter of fact, online. So. So how do we make people more aware that this is out there? I mean, I can tell you in my field, first responders deal with this on a, mm -hmm. on a daily, sometimes hourly basis, sadly. Absolutely. And, and, um, and, so, and let me ask you, uh, how do most of them um, process that, uh, those experiences uh, and or address them in their lives? Well, that's that's a good question. It varies uh, upon person, but um, mm -hmm. you know, often drinking. Mm -hmm. um, some do work out. Some do positive mm -hmm. things. Um, mm -hmm. Anger, aggression. Mm -hmm. So, it, it it really it really depends upon upon the person. But um, I don't. But yeah, <laughs> I think we're getting. I think we're getting better at it. Uh, if you're saying, do they go and see therapists? Mm -hmm. uh, I would say it's getting better in that also, but the majority Good. is is probably, and, and I could be a hundred percent wrong. I don't want anybody to come back, but I, I, I don't like, think you are. Based I think on the, the younger generation is better. The older generation and first and responders are still the suck it up and move on. I Tough do think out. that I yep. do think there's a a reach out. I would guess with the younger population of things are being talked about more mm -hmm. there is more it's more accessible to reach out and there was a study that was done in oklahoma after the oklahoma city bombing uh and uh the reason that they did the study was they started to see a spike in suicides among first responders the uh highest rates of suicide were among police officers next highest was um uh, ambulance and the lowest, uh, even though it was significant, was uh, firefighters. And when they started looking at the way that all of their lives were structured and the kind of help that they were getting, uh, none of them got any therapy really to speak of. Um, but police officers drive around all day in their cars by themselves with nobody to talk to and all their all of their dragon thoughts to to come at them when their minds aren't busy doing something else. Um, worst possible scenario for survival. 
Um, the second was the ambulance and, uh, and uh, EMTs. Uh, they could keep busy, they could talk to each other um, at work, but generally they went home at night and, and you know, uh, um, the third group, the firefighters, had the best numbers because they live in community. Mm -hmm. They live in the fire station. Oh, they can communicate with each other. They can build those relationships. They can talk to each other. They have access to each other all the time. Um, and so we begin to see that trauma is recovery, trauma recovery, or I don't even use the word recovery because you don't really recover from it. You just reassemble your life and try to do that in as healthy way as possible. But um, when you are in that situation, healthy, solid, safe, stable relationships are the key to getting better. Wow, that's and if you just sit around and think about all of these things that you don't want to think about while you're sitting in your, your car or sitting at home or drinking or any number of other things, I mean, it's not just first responders, it's also combat veterans. The, the rates of PTSD with combat veterans are extraordinarily high, much higher than the 10%. They're up around 30. Uh, and of course, so are the rates of suicide. Uh, they come back to, and this is the thing that people don't understand. They are in a dangerous environment. They are uh, being shot at. There are shells falling around them. Uh, they they time out. They come home. Oh, wow. I'm glad that's over. And yet it's not over. Right. They're back in a safe environment. They're back in a place where there are no bombs. There are no shells. There is no reason to be hypervigilant. And yet they can't shake these survival uh, mechanisms and behaviors that were shaped under fire, literally under fire uh, for maybe years. Uh, and they come back and they're expected to just go ahead and get back to normal. Right, yeah. And it doesn't work that way. But it the is at least brain doesn't. About, yeah, that's, it's a realization now, their programs, mm -hmm. whether or not someone pulls themselves out of isolation, which is very hard mm -hmm. to do. Right, and you have to get their cooperation. Um, I mean, what do you do with somebody whose whose memories are so toxic that that they can't escape any other way? Uh, what do you do when you have these memories and you think that you're the only person that's got this problem and you can't live with yourself unless locked in your brain? Right. Uh, and this is where therapy is so important, and it's so critical for people to get into this and. And this is where I begin to understand for myself and then begin to teach the importance of understanding trauma in the role of mental health and the role of mental illness, because trauma is the great chameleon. The, um, you can exhibit the same symptoms of, uh, uh, of Asperger's if you have PTSD. Um, you can exhibit the same symptoms of OCD, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. You can exhibit the same symptoms of uh, sociopathy. You can exhibit the same symptoms of um, addiction disorders of all types. Uh, and when I go through a list of, of um, mental illnesses and you know their you know, labels and their, their symptoms, I can go through that based on what I know about trauma and say, oh yeah, this could be trauma and this could be trauma and this could be trauma and this could be trauma. And when you go through that, you have to understand that and that, that if these things arise because of trauma, they will manifest just the same way 
as something that you were born with, maybe a congenital uh, propensity towards towards obsessive compulsive disorder, or the same way that uh, that they may have come through a developmental disorder uh, or developmental um, uh, period of your life. Um, but the th which could also be traumatic, but um, and hidden trauma. But uh, my point is that if you have a genetic uh, a genetic propensity or or a, a congenital um, uh, uh, condition uh, that's diagnosed as let's say bipo uh, bipolar or um, uh, borderline personality disorder, and then you have the same symptoms presenting because you have been deeply traumatized and the same parts of the brain were affected and causing these symptoms and these behaviors, now you have a problem. You can't treat them the same in terms yes. of treatment because the treatment that will work for the congenitally predisposed will not work for the traumatized person and vice versa. Right. And this is where I think our our mental illness, mental health community has really got to get on the ball. They've got to understand how much of and, and tease out what is possibly a result of trauma. And then we sit down and we start doing a trauma history. Then we sit down and we start trying to resolve these issues that are traumagenic. And we can do that through a variety of treatments. Uh, but you are almost exclusively working with memory, memory of events um, that are either implicit or explicit. You may not even know you have these memories. Uh, and then you begin dealing with the treatment that way in order to restore as much functionality to that person's life as possible. Or you treat it from an organic perspective. But one is not going to be the same as the other. Treatment is not going to be the same for each. Yeah, it's almost like what what comes first, the chicken or the egg, right? And we have to mm -hmm. get we have to get to the root of it. And unfortunately, I I'm not aware of screenings that have been done. I don't think anyone's ever screened my son who suffers from mental health issues for mm -hmm. any trauma. Um, yeah. he, he's never has yours, Nancy. No, no. I, I feel as though trauma to me is something that someone has to come forth and be the one to say this is this happened more mm -hmm. than the screening more than someone maybe i'm wrong but exactly. i feel like there are symptoms and there are diagnoses and mm -hmm. you know it goes this one route to figure yeah. out what's going on and get somebody help and sure uh, plenty of times they'll say they'll ask about traumatic things that might have happened but the definition of trauma like you're saying is it's so complex and it is. Um, unless somebody is really forthcoming, which is a very hard thing to force in someone, they may not get to that first. I mean, it takes, they may not even like remember. So what if they don't so know? What they if, might they not, may not know. They might right. not even be aware. It's the blocking out of something. Sexual trauma happens when people are preverbal. Mm -hmm. um, uh, trauma can happen whenever they go to visit the neighborhood, when they have a babysitter. Um, these kinds of incidents the parent may have no clue right? Uh, and can't even give a, a decent trauma history. And when that happens, then, then therapists have to go other routes uh, to try to get to those underlying um, uh, issues that may be uh, uh, causing the behavioral problems that, that they have. Uh, one of the books that I use a lot in my classes is Bruce Perry's book, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. 
fascinating book. Uh, Bruce has been doing a lot of work with uh, traumatized um, uh, children. Uh, he's a specialist in it. He worked, uh, he's, he did a lot of work here in Chicago. He worked with the children that came out of the Branch Davidian compound who were traumatized at that place. Um, and every single, <laughs> every single case is different and every single case teaches him something new. Uh, and uh, and that's how wide ranging it is. Well, I think of things like nine eleven or even mm -hmm. COVID, sure. mm -hmm. you know, which was super traumatic. So some mm -hmm. people may not even know that they're suffering from the ill effects from either of these events. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's, it's cultural. Cultural, right. like you just can't even the stigma of whatever it is. You can't. Mm -hmm. You have the block in your head, but. So, you know, so many times, finally, when there is a breakthrough, but somebody has to go through something to get to that breakthrough, it mm -hmm. does really start to help them. So, yeah, hopefully. Now, there are a lot of resources out there. Excuse me? I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, uh, I was just no. saying. Go, go ahead. ahead. Go okay, ahead. I'll go ahead. <laughs> um, there, there are a lot of resources out there, and we are becoming much more aware of this. Um, there's a, uh, a program called the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, uh, it's, uh, you know, abbreviated SAMHSA, S-A-M-H-S-A, um, and they have these amazing resources. Uh, they have uh, what they call treatment improve, improvement protocols uh, that they put out, and the, the one that I use in my classes is number 57. It's about 380 pages long, uh, and it's entitled uh, trauma-informed care in behavioral health services. And I just want to read uh, a paragraph uh, here. I don't want to go too long, but I just want to read uh, what it says here about trauma and mental disorders. Uh, people who are receiving treatment for severe mental disorders are more likely to have histories of trauma, including childhood physical and sexual abuse, serious accidents, homelessness, involuntary psychiatric hospitalizations, drug overdoses, interpersonal violence, and other forms of violence. Many clients with severe mental disorders meet criteria for PTSD. Others with serious mental illnesses who have history of trauma or present with psychological symptoms or mental disorders that are commonly associated with a history of trauma, including anxiety symptoms and disorders, mood disorders, major depression, dysthymia, bipolar disorder, impulse control disorders, and substance use abuse disorders. Trauma stress increases the risk for mental illness and findings suggest that traumatic stress increases the symptom severity of mental illness. And then it says, um, uh, as with trauma and substance abuse disorders, there is a bi-directional relationship. Mental illness increases the risk of experiencing trauma and trauma increases the risk of developing psychological symptoms and mental disorders. That was, that was obviously it was very well written and yeah and i eye-opening i think for a lot of our behind our door family who probably may be struggling with trauma by them by themselves and didn't know what it sounds like or what it looks like or i i think that's the biggest hurdle like how do i know if i suffer from ptsd or ptsi or how do you know and then, and then once you know to reach what out, do you, do? To re, you know, it's hard when you think people don't reach out that need it, that like Julie's saying, it's hard for people to recognize mm -hmm. that this is what, this is what the, one of the problems, the root of what they're experiencing to reach out for help. Exactly. And, and one of the problems with our mental health system today is, um, and I'm not going to get into the psychopharmacology stuff, but I will say that 
it doesn't do any good to mask symptoms without treating the source. Now, when you're dealing with traumatic issues and, and traumagenic um, mental illness, masking, masking symptoms is, is not going to be helpful because you still have the trauma sitting underneath. If you can address the trauma, work through the trauma with the variety of successful, um, successful uh, treatments that are out there, um, you can make a lot of great improvement. Um, and again, remember, this is, this is not limited to just people that are diagnosed with PTSD. This is limited. This is also includes the people that are living just under that PTSD, the diagnosis with their behavioral issues. Um, the ones with anger management issues, things like that. It's interesting that, um, nobody has, I have never found a, uh, a study, uh, on the effectiveness of anger management therapies and treatments, you know, like when you're sentenced by a judge to go to right. anger management school for no studies whatsoever. That's and yeah, the true. general consensus is it's because nobody wants to admit that they really aren't doing anything because, and I'm not going to make that as a categorical statement. They, they certainly can help people develop more cognitive awareness of their own self, more awareness of what triggers them. But in the long run, if their anger is uh, traumagenic, well, I don't want some guy that's taken a two-week class poking around my head looking for my traumas in an anger management class. Right. Uh, and neither should anybody else. Yeah. Um, the problem is that um, there's this, this panacea. There's this, okay, we're going to send you to this, or we're going to give you this, or we're going to, we're going to, we're going to do this. Um, and uh, and it's no wonder that people become frustrated a couple of months or years later when things just don't seem to have changed. Mm -hmm. If it's a check it off the list program, right, that's right. not going to do anything. Hopefully, so so what do you do? You go to a yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I hope that some of these, for example, the anger management programs throughout, you know, whoever you know, the court ordered, et cetera, mm -hmm. that they do include something that will really be a continuing path of therapy. I'm hoping. Indeed. And, and I'm not trying to throw cold water on the therapeutic, uh, therapeutic mm -hmm. community when it sure comes it to this. I'm sure but, it does exist, right. Um, Abstinence-based uh, alcoholic uh, um, self-help groups. Um, you keep going back and you keep going back and you keep going back. And yet we know that when most of those people leave that group, they are going to go back into an environment that's making them drink. <laughs> I mean, seriously, you, if you can't change the environment that's making you drink, the only thing you can do is go talk to people that will help talk you down off the cliff and help try to support you uh, as you are enduring that environment, which then becomes even more stressful and more traumatic uh, and makes it even harder to not drink or to not take drugs. Um, there's a, there's a great book called Chasing the Scream by uh, Johan Hari uh, about um, uh, drug addiction. And what they are finding is that people drink because of toxic environments. They're living in, in trauma every day. They're mm -hmm. taking drugs to try to relieve the pain. We have people who are overdosing on opioids. And if you look at the map of the United States where these opioid um, uh, overdoses are highest, you're seeing them in places where we've got heavy industry, we've got mining, 
we've got high pressure business um, uh, deals being made. You've got people trying to deal with physical pain. You've got them trying to deal with mental pain and emotional pain. And how do you do that? You take drugs if you cannot change the environment. Yeah. It's a problem. Can I, can I ask you a, a personal question? Please. Um, after your, your son was murdered, mm-hmm. what did that journey look like for you to get to, to the place where you are? I mean, we've only met just now, but I feel like you seem so healthy and, and put together. Not to say that you don't have your moments, but... How yeah, it still sucks. I know. I, I mean, yeah, I can only well, like, imagine. Attached to Julie's question, how soon after this horrific tragedy did you start writing that book? Could you get your head together to say, I have to do something to to help others because this has just been such a... Uh, it was a remarkably short period of time. Uh, wow. And I have also found this, I associate with lots and lots of, of homicide victims and victims of trauma. Many of them will turn, especially homicide victims, as opposed to people who have been personally attacked and sexually assaulted. And it's a different kind of dynamic that takes place there. But especially with homicide victims, we don't want this to happen to anybody else. Well, how do we do that? We start an organization, and you'll see these organizations pop up all throughout the U.S. in the big cities. Uh, we have Purpose Over Pain here in Chicago that I work closely with. Um, uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving was a, was a response to that. Um, there are uh, survivors groups that are popping up. Uh, Parents of Murdered Children is a nationally based uh, and internationally uh, influencing uh, organization. We call it the club that you don't want to begin to belong to. Sure. Uh, and, great resources. I'm glad you're mentioning. But phenomenal. And, and, and the reason these pop up is because people that have been victimized in this way. Well, I mean, look at the rape crisis centers, look at the, the CASA centers, look at all of these other uh, sexual assault uh, programs as well, and the hotlines and the suicide hotlines. Who's staffing those? Oftentimes, it's people that have a direct connection mm-hmm. to the trauma. Their friend was killed. Their friend killed themselves. Um, all of these things, or their friend was was molested or raped. Um, and sometimes it's people themselves, if they've been able to process through their trauma and be able to help others. Uh, but <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I was just looking at this the other night. Uh, the the trauma, uh, my trauma, my son's murder took place in August of 1997. Um, we started trials in uh, 1998, January to March, which is a very very short period of time. But it's because we were not in Chicago; we were in in Richmond, Virginia, uh, and well, actually the suburbs of Richmond, Virginia, uh, and um, western suburbs. Uh, and crime was pretty low and they they had a lot of good resources. We had very good support from the homicide support group that was run by the prosecutor's office and the victim advocates there. Uh, and by the fall of, and I started writing immediately after the trials were over because I had collected over the last six months all of this material from the internet and from every single book I could find. I'd go in and buy out an entire shelf of the bookstore um, and um, and read as much as I could. I read Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's book on death and dying, and it's like five stages of, of death. And then people start talking about the five stages of grief, and they're the same ones. And it's like, wait a minute, this this doesn't work. you know. And I started looking at things and, and things that were out there in Janice Harris Lord's book and a number of other ones that were less helpful. Because uh, they weren't written by her, um, but um, uh, I had all this stuff that I collected for my own well-being and the well-being of my family. And we were getting to the point now when we were reaching a milestone, 
And I was able to sit back and say, okay, now we're just going to try to coast through until we start getting better. Um, and I realized I had a drawer full of stuff. I can either throw it away or put it on a bookshelf or put it in a box, or I could take this and write the book that I didn't find in the bookstores. Mm. And so that's what I did. Uh, and by um, the fall of 1998, I had the first book, uh, first version, first edition, which was wow. about 80 pages long. Um, I took it to the National Organization of Victim Assistance Conference because my victim advocate said, you need to take this to the National Organization of Victim Assistance Conference. I took it down there. Um, it was like a swarm of locusts descending on my table because they'd never seen anything like this before. They were buying it as fast as I could I could sign them and take their money. Um, I gave them bulk order forms and they and the 500 that I had printed were gone in a matter of weeks. And I said, you know, I need I think I got something here. Yeah. Uh, and so I developed a more uh, uh, an expanded version uh, that, that could be uh, that could go in a bookstore. Um, and that was the second edition, and that came out the following year in 1999. And then in 2000, I was pretty much finished the third edition because I really felt that I needed to expand it even further. Um, and uh, uh, and I've been working with that one ever since. Uh, it's because a forward written by Patricia Cornwell, um, who's a lovely person who used to work for the victim assist of uh, the uh, uh, Illinois, uh, the Virginia. Um, uh, medical examiner's office. Uh, and um, uh, she wrote the forward. Of course, everybody knows Patricia Cornwell is the, the mystery writer. Right. Um, and she actually wrote my book into her book, The Last Precinct. If anybody wants to look, wow. wants to look it up, but it's at the top of page 309. Mm -hmm. uh, get your copies and, and check it out. Um, but just a paragraph or two. And, and Kay Scarpetta, the medical examiner, gives my book to a homicide victim's family. Wow. What a resource. I mean, that's, I mean, it's like, wow, that's interesting. That's special. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> but what, but what, I got so much support. And then I started speaking at conferences based on my experience. And then I got into the neuroscience and neurobiology of it and became an expert in that through my own uh, studies. I was a, actually a biology major in college. So I, I, I had a, a step up with that already. And, um, and now I'm, you know, uh, an acknowledged expert on in the field of trauma and victim services and, and victim studies and all of that stuff. Well, we can't, um, we can't thank you enough for sharing everything. I mean, yeah, I, I just so valuable. I just want to know when you were going through that time, if you mm -hmm. were also going through therapy, were you connected with support groups? I was. Uh, okay. Most of my just therapy came through support listening. groups and peer support. Okay. Uh, I tried Which going through a therapist. Um, he immediately pulled out his prescription pad. And when he did that, it's like, if he doesn't want to talk to me, right. this isn't going to be a good relationship. So I, I started moving through the, the uh, you know, personal support and, um, and peer support. Um, and I would recommend that if someone is, thinks that what they're dealing with may be traumagenic, either from early child abuse or uh, from sexual assault or things they may not even remember that happened to them, uh, or things that did happen to them, and these symptoms started to appear later uh, as a result of that, the, the uh, anxiety issues and not being you know, able to go downtown anymore or 
uh, or being afraid of the other neighbor's dog, you know, the big old Labrador retriever on the other side that just loves everybody. And it's like you're terrified of him. If you think that these are things, start working with a trauma-informed therapist. Yes. Look for somebody that has those words in their Very good in advice. Their material. Trauma-informed therapist, because they are going to be the ones that are going to look at your issues and say, I think we can rule out that this is a, a genetic thing or a, a, a behavioral thing or, or a, you know, an innate personality issue. And I think we should uh, try to explore in a safe place with trusted people and with uh, a lot of high confidence in, in, in where we're going with this. Um, I think we can explore the, the trauma treatments that are out there and, uh, and try to help you with that. Wow. Just amazing. We cannot thank you for being so candid about your story and and how you've gotten where you are. It's well, a- it's one of the things that I committed to when this happened. Uh, if I'm going to do this, I need to go in 100%. And, you sure uh, did. You're there's in no, no question that I am not going, not willing to answer. Um, I'll talk about any of it to anybody, anytime, uh, if it will help them better serve people who are dealing with trauma in their Thank you so much for sharing your time. And Absolutely. And if you want, if you want me to come back and, and do a round two, I am more than happy. <laughs> we to, would, we would. We never even to, touched uh, on labor laws, but right, we exactly. can get that to that. You guys, go one. away and make up a list of questions, and we'll come back <laughs> yeah. and do another one. <laughs> yeah, to have you back. Thank you so much, Bill. And oh, you're welcome. Our heart it's been a real pleasure. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We welcome your input. To contact us or any of our guests, please email us at behindourdoor@mail.com. That's behindourdoor@mail.com. And please don't forget to like and share our podcast. Um, leave us a rating. Tell us how we're doing. We really want your feedback. It's important to us. We are so thankful that you are here and listening to us. If you or someone you know is in crisis struggling with mental illness, you can call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or the NAMI Helpline at 1-800-950-6264. Until next time, please join us for another conversation behind our door. Thanks for listening.